Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see you all here, and I second Josh's statement that it's an honor to worship with all of you and be in God's presence and to hear his word. Uh, You know, it's November, what is it, 5th today, November 6th? Usually around this time of year, Minnesotans start getting grumpy. Uh, But this has been the most beautiful fall I can remember. It is just, it's a, hallelujah. I tell you, with this global warming, our real estate is going up, all right? So, So it's a... One of the benefits of being a pastor is that you get sent a lot of stuff. Well, sometimes that's a benefit, sometimes it's not. But uh, yeah, someone sent me this. How do you like that? Jesus, love your enemies, 2016. But don't bother voting for him. He already ran and he won. So, so. so it's supposed to, it's, it's got this magnetic thing. Can I stick it in here? That doesn't stick. Rats, I was hoping it could stick. Oh, well, there's that. Okay, so we're in this series. We're using this uh, presidential race as an occasion, a teaching opportunity, to talk about the distinctives of, of the kingdom that we're a part of and the king that we uh, serve and our citizenship in heaven. So uh, today we're going to be talking about hope, our one hope. There's only one. And I want to start by reading a passage. It's a prophecy about Jesus that was given about 800 years before Jesus was born. And here's what it says. It's out of Isaiah. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Hallelujah. Now, I'll get back to that passage in about maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, and there's going to be some really good news that I'll have to share with that passage. But see, you only appreciate the good news if you really appreciate just how bad the bad news is. The good news is the antidote to the bad news. And so to really appreciate the good news, uh, you've got to see how bad the bad news is. As long as you think the bad news is, is not all that bad or that it can be you know, turned into good news. You're never going to fully see the beauty of the real good news. You're never going to cling wholly to the beauty of the good news. And so the first part of this message is going to be talking about bad news. It'll be kind of a depressing first couple moments of this this, uh, uh, message. Uh, And if you have any hope in the bad news becoming good news, uh, this could be a time that really could bring you to despair. So I'm going to lead us down a tunnel of despair. The tunnel of despair. But I promise you there is good news coming, so I don't want anyone offing themselves or anything like that. Uh, hang on there, hang in there, and you'll see that there is some good news that is, 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 is going to eventually come our way. Uh, in this presidential race that we're suffering through right now, uh, what's happening is that the various candidates, and this happens every presidential race and every political race, is that they're selling us hope. They're selling hope. And I don't slight them for that. Uh, they just sincerely think they have hope to offer. And so each, each candidate is saying, look, trust in me. I know what the problems are, and I know how to fix them. Put your trust in me. My opponent doesn't, but I do. And so they're selling us hope. Now, this particular election, it's true of every election to some degree, but this one in particular, there's a lot of folks that are having trouble having any hope. Uh, there's, there's a widespread distrust towards the whole political system. In fact, I've heard commentaries on, on both sides, left and right, who, who say that the whole, quote-unquote, Trump phenomenon 
is reflective of this deep-seated mistrust in the whole system that many, many people have. Um, the reason why he's got such widespread support, these commentators say, is because uh, they are convinced that no, no insider to the establishment could possibly fix the establishment, and the whole thing they think is broken. And, and, and this is why uh, when, he, when Trump does things and says outlandish things, things that would usually disqualify somebody, uh, it doesn't affect his support. In fact, in some ways, it's to his advantage because the more unconventional he is, the more folks are convinced that he's not an insider and that he's one of us. I, I heard a young man on the, being interviewed on the television probably a month ago or so, and he was a Trump supporter, and, and, and he said this. He goes, look, I know the guy's offensive. I get offended. But and maybe he's even a little touched in the head. But that's exactly the kind of guy we need to go and fix this rigged system that's become the White House. And this is the only kind of person that can possibly make America great again. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this young man's conclusion, but I can't help but empathize with that sense of hopelessness that drives it, that this thing is broken. In fact, in fact if, if we zoom out a little more... Um, I think we can see that the situation is far more hopeless than this young man even thought. So now we're about to head down the tunnel of despair, all right? Uh, as I'm going to zoom out a little bit and put this presidential race in the context of history. So we're going to get a little uh, lesson on American history here. As nasty and mean-spirited as this presidential campaign has been, and really unprecedented by recent standards, um, if you, if you look at the whole of American history and, and, and the history of American politics, you can see that it's really not that exceptional. In fact, the mean-spiritedness and nastiness of this presidential campaign is pretty much par for the course. Uh, a really good book on this is by Joseph Cummings. Uh, it's entitled Anything for a Vote, and it's, it's a historical analysis of the nastiness of American politics. And it's really pretty eye-opening. I uh, learned a lot of stuff that I didn't previously know. See, a, a lot of folks, especially conservative Christians, have this idealized view of the founding fathers. Uh, these, the founding fathers were all Christian gentlemen who treated each other with respect and, and, and got along fairly well, and they had a united vision for America. Some would even add, for America being a Christian nation. That is pure mythology. The truth is that they were at each other's throats most of the time. There's a lot of divisions and a lot of factions and a lot of fighting that went on. The two major divisions were, were, were this. On the one side you had this group called the Republicans, and they were headed up, headed up by people like Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. And they believed in having a minimal federal government and uh, transferring authority, maximal authority to the states and to individuals. Uh, Thomas Jefferson coined that, that phrase, that government governs best, which governs least. And their philosophy was actually pretty close to what today is known as the Libertarian Party. On the opposite side of the spectrum, there were folks like, like, like uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, who were uh, Federalists. They, they call themselves the Federalists. And they believed in having a big central government. They thought America should be a nation that's united around a strong federal government, which would make it a, an economic and, and military global power. And whereas the Republicans wanted a minimal military, just enough to defend the borders, these folks thought we should have a maximal military and that America would play a role around the globe. Now, these two groups and the followers of these two groups didn't like each other very much. In fact, there's a, a newspaper uh, uh, essay that is in the 1790s that said that the relationship between the Federalists and the Republicans is about as good as the relationship between the British and the French. And the British and the French were at war at the time. So these two factions didn't like each other very much at all. 
And the fighting was sometimes vicious. We've, we've seen a little bit of violence happening in our political campaign. But that was, that was par for the course back in the good old days. Uh, we've got accounts of fistfights breaking out all over the place. Brawls happened at, at, at conventions. And uh, uh, there's even uh, uh, instances of, of whole towns kind of going to war, battling over this, riots breaking out over political disputes, sometimes with lethal consequences. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for folks to settle political disputes by having a gun duel. You know, where you march 20 steps, and then you turn around and shoot the other person. And that was not uncommon. Uh, in fact, Alexander Hamilton, uh, the, the, the Federalist I just mentioned, he was killed by, in a gun duel with Aaron Burr. Now, you know, Alexander Hamilton was uh, the former secretary treasurer, and Aaron Burr was the reigning vice president. <laughs> And these guys did not get along. And so they're having a political dispute, and they decide to have a feud to settle the thing, and they shoot, and Hamilton gets killed. Which strikes me as about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How, that proves that Burr was right, or what? But, you know, on the other hand, maybe they're on to something. Uh, you know, maybe we should just give guns to Donald and Hillary and say, have at it, and whoever wins is the president. They want to kill each other anyway. And save a lot of money and save a lot of time. You know, I'm just, just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just kidding. I'm a pacifist. But uh, yeah, so, so, you know, while our presidential race, yeah, it, it's, it's nasty and it's mean-spirited. But it's nothing like back in the good old days when our founding fathers were laying the foundation for this great Christian nation. All right? They didn't know how to fight politics. Allegations of corruption were not uncommon. That's been a pretty standard thing throughout American history. And sometimes these allegations turn out to be true. Uh, in, in 1880, James Garfield was running against James Hancock. Uh, he ended up beating him, uh, and the, it was a very tight race, and the, the, the race hung in the balance on Indiana. That was the big swing state in 1880. And it turned out, we learned shortly after Garfield was in office, that the Republicans had bribed thousands of Democrat, Democrats to vote Republican. And a lot of historians argued that if it wasn't for that bribe, Garfield never would have gotten into office. And Garfield probably wishes that would have happened because about nine months later, he got assassinated. So corruption and even assassinations are nothing new. Rumors and name-calling is nothing new in, in American politics. In 1800, 1800 was probably the nastiest election we've ever had. It was really nasty. Um, makes ours look really tame. But Thomas Jefferson, among other things, hired uh, some reporters to spread a rumor that his opponent, John Quincy Adam, was hermaphrodite. Someone should have started a rumor about how Thomas Jefferson knew that. But, uh, yeah, just saying. In 1836, Davy Crockett. You know Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier, wore a coon hat. Uh, that old show, Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. It's going back a long ways. But Davy Crockett, who was a well-known hero, fought the Battle of Alamo and all that stuff, he started a rumor that uh, uh, Martin Van Buren, who was running for president, that he was a cross-dresser. Isn't that special? In 1855, James Buchanan, uh, it was, uh, turned out to be the 15th president, but while he was running, a rumor started, we don't know who started it, but it got to be widespread. See, he's got a, a, a neck condition where he could never straighten his neck. He's always walking like this. And, and the rumor was that his neck got that way because he tried to hang himself earlier in his life, implying that he was emotionally and psychologically imbalanced. Rumors are nothing new. Nor are sex scandals. And now it gets juicy. <laughs> sex scandals, nothing new. What it, he, he, 
Up until the 1980s, journalists didn't at all speak about the sex lives of candidates or presidents or anything of the sort. It was just common etiquette. In fact, they turned, the, you know, they, they looked the other way when they saw stuff happening. But that didn't stop the rumor mill from, from working. And so we have a couple of, of juicy ones here. Thomas Jefferson, uh, and some of these allegations turned out to be true. Thomas Jefferson, it was rumored, had six or more children with uh, at least one of his many slaves. Uh, and that, in 1999, was proven to be true through, through DNA. Uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, while he was Secretary Treasurer, had this ongoing affair with this lady who happened to be married. And what makes this particularly, particularly interesting is that uh, the husband found out about it and blackmailed Alexander Hamilton, and Hamilton paid him that hush money. But it didn't stay hushed for very long because the Congress found out about it. And so he was put on trial while he was Secretary Treasurer. But they couldn't prove that he used any funds from government to pay off this, this per person. And so he was acquitted of all wrongdoing. And then James Buchanan, uh, when he was in the White House, he actually had a gay, his gay lover move in with him. And he wasn't particularly discreet about this. Uh, it was kind of common knowledge, I gather, that, that he has a gay lover in the White House. Um, and they gave him, his nickname while he was in office was Aunt Fancy. Aunt Fancy, which apparently was a slang term for gay men back in the 19th century. So Aunt Fancy was, was running the country for a number of years. But the award on sex scandals goes to the famous JFK. And I'm sure you've heard about some of his exploits. He, he was a very busy president. And um, uh, he had a lot of special guests at the White House. The guy also had chutzpah. Uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when folks were really thinking that World War III is about to start, um, he, during that crisis, in the middle of that crisis, he snuck in Marilyn Monroe into the White House. It's like, man, the world's going to end and you've got this on your mind. Now maybe, maybe they were going to talk politics or he, he was going to get a... a <laughs> it's well known she was a, a political savant, right? Uh, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it, it does look a little bit suspicious. So sex scandals are nothing new. So while our, our presidential race has been more sexually explicit than any in recent past and has been mean-spirited and all sorts of rumors and all sorts of allegations, uh, it, it is really par for the course if you take the long view of history. So if you're looking for, if your hope is that American politics are going to significantly improve or that this election we're going to get it right and we're going to end the nastiness and we're all going to get along and we're going to be stronger for it and America's going to be great again or anything of the sort, well, I, I think you're, you're, you're going to be disappointed. The truth is that, that there's very little that's ever really new in American politics. And that's probably true of every country. It, it, it's new that we've had a, a black president for the last eight years. And if Hillary gets elected, it'll be new that we have a, our first female president. That'll be new. But the basic content of the speeches and the basic behavior of candidates is pretty much the same year after year after year. If you're old enough, you've probably noticed this, that the speeches you hear this cycle are pretty much the same as they heard four years ago and four years before that and four years before that and four years before that. In fact, I watched a commentary on, on political campaigns uh, since like 1960. It's amazing how similar they sound. The details are all different, but if you took all the details and just replaced them, you could pretty much press the play button and play them all over again. It's like, we need, it's time for a change. This, finally a candidate who could really make a difference. Uh, finally a candidate who will get things done in the White House. This time things are going to be different. Uh, we're going to make America great again. Uh, we're going to fix what is broken. Huh? We're going to be united. This, this candidate can unite us because we're so divided. And it just goes on and on. It's a broken record. And when you step back and take a long view of this and see this broken record, it has the effect, and it's a positive effect for kingdom people, 
of, of, of kind of undermining any hope you have that this thing is ever going to work, that's ever going to get fixed, and that we're finally going to get it right. But I'm not quite down to the bottom of the tunnel of despair yet. Hang on. I, I want to go a little further. Um, I want to zoom out a little, 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 little higher, and now let's take a look at all of world history. When you look at world history, it's a little bit like looking at an ocean in the middle of a storm. These waves rise up high, and then they come crashing down. Waves is crashing against one another. And what's crashing here, what these waves are, are reigning nations, countries, and empires. And history is a series of nations reigning and, and countries and empires rising up mighty and strong, only to come crashing down. And they always come crashing down. And we don't know where America is on the arc of this wave, Although there's a lot of social commentators that, ask, that, that, that think that we're past our peak. But one thing is certain, and not a lot of people want to hear this perhaps, but it will come crashing down. Uh, it will, like every other empire that's ever existed, it will come to an end. It will fade off. One more thing is certain, and that is this. In the mighty countries and empires that have risen, the folks, the majority of folks who are on the inside of those empires didn't see the end coming, didn't believe that the end would ever come. It felt so secure, it felt so stable. They thought this thing would last forever. Couldn't fathom the idea that it would come to an end. In Rome, uh, it, it was a common slogan, both for the rulers and for the common people, that this is, an, this is an eternal empire. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, will last forever. This is the empire that's the exception to all others. Yeah, they knew about how, how Assyria and Babylon and all these other nations had risen and fallen, but this is the exception because the gods favor this country. They favor this empire, and this empire's got it right, and they run things the right way, and so it's never, ever going to end. And they had a good run. I mean, they lasted 500 years. They peaked around the 2nd and 3rd century, the Roman Empire, and then began to decline. And in 476... Uh, Germanic tribes from the north came down and toppled the whole thing. It came to an end. And that is what is true for all empires throughout history. Uh, there's been some that have had a really good run, but they all come to an end. So, for example, the, the Portuguese Empire it was the first global empire, reigned on both sides of the ocean. It lasted 584 years, but it came to an end. The Ottoman Empire, uh, run by the Muslims, it was the most advanced civilization on the planet. Uh, it, it, in terms of science, uh, it was just so advanced, and education, and, and it had wealth, and it had opulence, and they thought it would never end because Allah was on its side. And it lasted for 623 years, but it eventually came to an end. The Ethiopian uh, Empire had a mighty army. It was feared all over the place. It lasted 665 years. But you go to Ethiopia now, you'd never dream it was once a mighty empire. Or the Khmer Empire, which was stationed in Cambodia, uh, it reigned 690 years, but it eventually came to an end. Uh, the Khmer Rouge that, we, that, that did that genocide that we saw in that video, that was an attempt to revive that mighty empire. But like all empires, it came to an end. They all fall. Most of them fall much quicker than these. These are the longest ones, but most fall much quicker. For example, take, did you know that, that 9 to 10 million people I've read, were killed in the Russian Revolution in 1916, 1917, uh, and in the years that, that, that immediately uh, followed. Nine to 10 million people. And then during the communist reign, it's hard to know this for sure because it was all secret, but scholars estimate that somewhere between 15 and 60 million people were killed um, in order to protect that regime. They were paranoid, and any, any group, any individuals that thought, they thought might, might try to subvert this thing, they were, they were put to death. 
So massive bloodshed to prop this thing up. But see, the, the people who founded it, Lenin and his followers, with their Marxist philosophy, they thought that finally they would have a form of government that would last forever. And they thought they were doing the world a favor. Uh, they believed that capitalism was the root of all evil. And the reason why uh, nations fall apart sooner or later is because of class struggle. So we just get rid of classes, there'll be nothing that can, can destabilize the government. And so they believed that this was the government that would last forever. It would eventually, because people would see how good it is and people are happy and there's no inequality, that, that other nations would follow suit and the globe would finally live in peace as we're all a bunch of communists. And so millions of people were willing to die for that. It would last forever. Well, it made it about 70 years. In the late 80s, it came toppling down. And old Vladimir Putin is over there riding on a horse with his shirt off, trying to revive the thing. Uh, but no one thinks he's going to be very successful at that. Uh, it will only be a shell of, of what it once was. All empires come to an end. But see, I want us to enter into this. All of these empires, all the people in these empires thought it was so stable, thought it was permanent, thought they could put their hope and their trust in this. This is going to last forever. And they all turned out to be castles of sand that were erased by the, the, the waves of time. And folks, it's no coincidence that all of these countries, nations, and empires, they were established by violence, and they were toppled by violence. There's never been an exception to that, which means that all of these nations throughout history, without exception, have proven the truth of Jesus when he said that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you're established by the sword, you'll be ended by the sword sooner or later. And, and folks, the truth is that America was founded on horrendous violence, and it was built up on horrendous violence. And uh, it will, at some point, who knows when, it will fade away. So if your hope is in America as being the one exceptional nation, and if or if your hope is that in this election we'll finally get it right and finally solve our problems and finally fix things and finally know how to get along, uh, I'm afraid you're betting on the wrong horse. Uh, you're going to be very, very disappointed. And that is the bad news for today. Have a good day. God bless you guys. <laughs> Go Vikings! <laughs> Somebody up here in the front row has got a razor blade going, please, I need some good news right now, please. Uh, okay, uh, are you ready for some good news? Yeah. Are you ready for some good news? Yeah. Okay, wait just a moment further. I got a little more bad news to share. <laughs> but good news is coming. Okay, after the crucifixion, the disciples were in despair because they had good reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He'd given them plenty of good reasons to believe that with his miracles and his claims and all of that. So they believed it was the Messiah, but like most Jews of the time, they believed that the Messiah was going to establish the kingdom of God the way rulers established the, kingdom of the kingdoms of the world, with violence. They had no other paradigm to think about this through. And so they thought, most Jews at the time thought, that Jesus would come, or not some, some Messiah would come, and that uh, he would raise up a mighty army, and then the power of God would overthrow the Romans and establish Israel as a sovereign nation, and the Messiah would rule then over the kingdom of God uh, forever and ever and ever. That was their expectation. That's why whenever Jesus would talk about his sufferings, it would go in one ear and out the other. They just couldn't receive it. It's way outside their paradigm. So when Jesus was crucified by his enemies instead of crucifying his enemies, well, their hope came dashing to the ground in a million fragments of utter despair. But on that first Easter morning, three days later, the tomb was empty. And then Jesus appeared to them, and over 40 days appeared to them in his resurrected form. 
And that, folks, changed everything. I don't know if you've read about this or heard about this. It's been on the news. It was published in National Geographic. Uh, there's a bunch of scientists uh, over in the, working now over in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Old Jerusalem. And they're, they're trying to prove, and some think they can prove, that this, this slab of rock that's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the actual slab that the body of Jesus was, was laid on while he was in the tomb. Uh, now, I don't know how they could possibly prove that, and I'm always skeptical of those kind of claims. But even if they're right, I'm thinking, who gives a rip? Who, who cares? Uh, you know, the only thing that's significant about that slab of rock is that there are no bones on it. The body is not there. He's gone. He's out of here. Amen. Because the truth is that on, on that first Easter morning, the power of the living God invaded that tomb and broke apart the chains of death and defeated evil. And Jesus rose victorious out of that tomb. Praise God. And resurrected life. And when the disciples witnessed that, when the disciples witnessed that, their despair was turned into a new and living and vibrant hope. It was only then, after the resurrection, that they could clearly see that the kingdom of God is not like any of the kingdoms of this world. It was only then that they could see that, that unlike the kingdoms of the world, which are established with violence, the kingdom of God can't be established with violence, which is why the kingdom of God can never be toppled by violence. It's the one exception. That if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Well, this one doesn't live by the sword. They could now see, after the resurrection, but only after the resurrection, that, that the kingdom of God, rather than be, being established and supported by taking the lives of your enemy, and the kingdom of, God, the kingdom of God is established by Jesus giving his life for his enemies out of love for his enemies. And what the resurrection proves, you guys, is that the love of God, that self-sacrificial, nonviolent, enemy-embracing love that was manifested on the cross, that love is more powerful than all the kingdoms of the world. That love is more powerful than death, more powerful than sin, more powerful than hate, more powerful than bombs and bullets and tanks, more powerful than all the nations, more powerful than all the militaries, more powerful than the devil himself, praise God. So the kingdom of God is the one kingdom that's not a castle of sand that can be erased by the, the, the waves of time. Uh, the kingdom of God is the castle of the living God whose reign is forever and ever, whose character is revealed on the cross, and whose reign is established by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to that kingdom, there will be no end. Amen? Yeah. Never. Amen. Only after the resurrection could the disciples understand how that prophecy that we read earlier applies to Jesus. And so let, 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 let's read it one more time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he, will and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. After the resurrection, the disciples could see this, and we must see this, that that. The kingdom of God can never end because the reign of this government and the peace of this government is on his shoulders. It's on the shoulders of the wonderful counselor, the shoulders of the mighty God, the shoulders of the prince of peace, uh, the shoulders of the everlasting father. This government, unlike every other government in the world, it, 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 it's not on the shoulders of some fickle, fallible, fallen, fabrication-making, sometimes self-serving politicians. Um, it's on the shoulder of, of the Prince of Peace. You never have to worry about Jesus being involved 
in a sex scandal or an email scandal or a lying scandal or a, a defrauding a charity scandal or, or a cheating in business scandal or flip-flopping on issues sort of scandal. His character is perfect. His character is altogether sinless. His character is beyond reproach. His character is altogether trustworthy. And he, unlike every other person that's ever ran for office, is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, praise God, which is why his kingdom will never fade away. Amen. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah that we heard about earlier, but he reigns like a sacrificed lamb, reigning with sacrificial love. He is the mighty God, praise God. What the resurrection proves is that the kingdom of the almighty God can never be defeated, can never, it's invincible, it's undefeatable, it's incorruptible, it's immutable, it's here to stay and it will never fade away, praise God. Which means it's the one horse you can bet on. This is the one horse you should bet on. I'm sorry, I just called Jesus a horse. I, I, I. No, the, the, the truth is, folks, we've seen hundreds, thousands of, of kings and, and lords and rulers and presidents come and go, and their nations come and go. And all these rulers, in various ways, were selling hope. Put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. I, I know the problems, and I know how to fix them. But the reign of Jesus has come, but it ain't going nowhere. Uh, it, it, it's come and it will not fade away because, folks, he is the king of all kings and the lord of all lords and the president of all presidents and the ruler of all rulers. He's the one king you can actually trust, the one lord you can put all your hope in. He is the one president that actually has a plan that is going to work and the one ruler who can actually fix things, fix what is broken and transform not just America but the entire world to be what God knows it can be and what it will be. Amen? Amen. So put all your hope, all your hope, not just some of your hope, not just most of your hope, but all your hope on Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It's the only sure thing that anyone has ever had. And it's here available to all of us. Okay, so our trust is in Jesus, that he's the only one who can fix things. But should that, should that mean that, that we should just sort of throw our hands up on the air and retreat from society and sit on our butts and wait for Jesus to come back to fix things? No! No. Now, I was given that kind of theology when I was first a Christian, and it's far too widespread, but it's absolutely wrong-headed thinking. Um, uh, look, at Jesus is the only one who can fix the world, but he's fixing it already, and he's doing it through his second corporate body, which is the body of Christ. We are his hands, his feet, we are his ambassadors, and he wants to be working in the world now. Now, the, the world won't be totally transformed until he returns again. But we're to be laying the runway strip, if you will, the runway strip for his return, by moving the world in that direction. And while we have no trust, or I hope we don't have any confidence in the world's, that the world's way of fixing things is going to ever permanently fix things. We don't, policies and laws and, and, and parties and candidates and, and guns and bullets and bombs, they're just not going to fix things. We've had a whole history of trying that, and it, it doesn't. So our confidence isn't there. But because we have all of our hope in Jesus, we have to have all of our hope in the Jesus way of transforming things. And it's not about coming over people. It's about coming under people. In his life and especially in his death, Jesus showed God's way of transforming the world, of fixing problems. And it's by bleeding for people. It's by serving people. It's by washing people's feet. It's by refusing to ever not love people. It's by willing to be, to be put out in inconvenience, sacrificing your time, your energy, and resources on behalf of others. It's by manifesting the character of God, the self-sacrificial character of God, uh, by how we serve others. And, and the process of manifesting that, which is our call as ambassadors, that is what inches the world closer and closer to the, 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 the point where God knows that it will be eventually. 
We see what's coming. And so we're to be sort of a sneak preview of what is coming. And that's how we put on display the beauty of God's self-sacrificial love. So, for example, we know that when the kingdom comes in fullness, there's not going to be any hungry people. There'll be no more hunger. But that doesn't mean that we throw our hands up in the air and sit in our butts and say, gosh, I hope Jesus comes back soon so we can feed hungry people. No, our job is to do that now. We want to we be bleeding for the, the hungry folks now. So also, for, we know that there will be no homelessness when the kingdom comes in fullness. But we don't just sit on our butts and wait for Jesus to do that when he comes back. Our job is to be addressing the issue of homelessness now and to allow ourselves to be, to, to be pinched, to bleed, to sacrifice time, resources, energy, money, talents in order to provide housing for people. And we know that when the end comes, when the kingdom comes, there'll be no more violence at all. And so our job is to be a community of people who put on display what it looks like to be free of violence now. And when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, there'll be no more people in bondage to sin. So our job is to manifest what it looks like now as much as possible to be freed from the bondage to sin. And we know that when Jesus returns, there's not going to be any more racism. And so we are to be a people who put on display what it is to be free of racism here and now. And, and when Jesus returns, there'll be no more gender inequality. That was never part of God's design. So our job isn't to wait for that to happen, but it's to put on display now what it looks like to be a community that doesn't privilege one gender over other genders. And when the kingdom comes in fullness, folks, every person, every living person is going to know that they have unsurpassable worth regardless of what they do, what they've done, what they've achieved, what they haven't achieved, uh, you know, regardless of the talents or lack of talents or IQ or lack of IQ, they have unsurpassable worth. And so our job is to put that on display now, to be a people who are willing to express to people their unsurpassable worth by what we're willing to sacrifice for them, to love those that aren't loved, to befriend those who aren't befriended, uh, to, to, to look at those who are invisible in society and love those who are on the margins of society and love the immigrant and love the foreigner and welcome those that others look at with eyes of suspicion. No ifs, ands, or buts. All people at all times. No fine print. We're to love all the way Jesus loved us, which is describe unsurpassable worth to them. Amen. And we do that now. We're, our hope is to be a hope that's put into action. I, I, I saw this on a news station recently and... Um, it was about volunteers in this, uh, the work of volunteers in this campaign. And they said that that is what makes the difference. Uh, it's what kind of volunteer base do you have? And some of these volunteers, see, they're willing to sacrifice enormous amounts of time and energy, take time off of work even, uh, and they make sacrifices because they have hope in their candidate. They believe their candidate offers some hope for the future of America. And I respect them for that. And, and so that some of these folks took time off of work, like months off of work, and, and, and they, they, they put hours in every day making phone calls to people, knocking on doors, handing out pamphlets, handing out yard signs, handing out bumper stickers, and, and all sorts of stuff because they have hope. You can tell what a person hopes for by what they're willing to put their time and energy and resources in because no one puts their time, energy, and resources into something they think is hopeless. The hope drives their action. And I thought to myself as I watched that, if, if folks out in the world... Ordinary folks are willing to make these kind of sacrifices for political candidates who they have some hope in, who I don't have much hope in. But how much more should the people of God who know the one hope of the world, the one hope of America and the one hope of every individual, how much more should we be willing to put our hope into action and to let that hope motivate us to make sacrifices to further the cause of the kingdom of God and do the work of ministry that we've been called to do, knowing that each drop of blood inches the world closer to the, 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 the goal where, that God knows it's going to get eventually when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. And so 
I, I want to end with this question. Maybe two questions. We'll see. Uh, but here's the question. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Now, I know you know the answer that I, I would like you to give. Maybe it's the answer that you believe that you can give. But go deeper. Where is your hope really? I know you know where it should be, but where is it really? A, a way to get at this is to ask the question, do you have any anxiety or outright fear and any animosity swirling around in your heart over the outcome of this election? I heard, heard some whispers, yeah. Because <laughs> um, see, here's the thing. I, I, I saw this therapist on television the other day, and she was just saying how uh, anxiety levels are going through the ceiling here in America. People are freaking out. Uh, and people, and she says, I'm seeing clients who, uh, they, they have never had this condition before, but they're having panic attacks all of a sudden, or they're, they can't sleep very well. Uh, they're not e eating very well. The rashes are, they're breaking out in rashes and, and, and stuff like that. They're having anxiety disorders and it, it's over this election. And anxiety and fear and animosity and all those kind of negative things, they all are a result of this. When something we put our hope in is threatened, we get anxious. So if you're having this kind of emotions, it means you've got some horses in that race. You, you've got, you're, you're, you're betting on some other horse. And I encourage you, if that is you, will you right now make a decision to surrender all that to God and to resolve in your heart that you're going to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and put all of your hope in Jesus and his kingdom. Um, you know, the, Isaiah 26.3 says that God will keep him in perfect peace whose eyes are fixed on him. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. And, and, and I do that on a regular basis, whether it's an election campaign or not. Because what can happen is you can have your eyes fixed on Jesus one day, but the, the undertow of the culture can grab you and you find yourself freaking out two days later. So resolve to fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your trust in his kingdom. Put all your bets on this horse because uh, it's the one horse that will win. Where's your hope? The second question then is right at, on, on the heels of this one. It's a version of the same question. And it is this. Are you putting your hope into action? Are you putting your hope into action? Ask, the quest, ask this question. Where in your life do you feel the pinch of the kingdom? The kingdom begins when we bleed. Because that's Jesus' way of transforming the world. He bleeds for it. Where are you bleeding? Uh, where are you making sacrifices to further the work of the ministry? Uh, to do the, the work that God's called us to do? Ask the question, what do you not have that you might otherwise have if you weren't a follower of Jesus? Where does your faith count? Where is it making a difference? And, and as you ask that question, let the Holy Spirit just work in your heart. Now, maybe you're doing exactly what God wants you to do, and you're doing all that God wants you to do, but maybe not. Maybe there's some conviction around that. And then just ask the Holy Spirit, how would you want me to bleed more for others to further the world in the direction that you want it to head? to further the kingdom of God. Uh, in what respects does your life reflect that of an ambassador who knows that you're to seek first the kingdom of God and to put on display the character of God, which is always about sacrificing for others. Let the Holy Spirit right here, right now, just work in your heart and let him lead you. And if you're a couple, you know, be praying about this together. How are you together? It's supposed to be a dynamic duo for the kingdom and to sacrifice for the kingdom. And with your families, in an age-appropriate way, say, how should we, how can we alter our life? To mean more for the kingdom of God. Because honestly, folks, our, our activism, our activism should really dwarf the activism that's out there in the political world because our confidence is so much more deeply rooted, amen? And so much more important 
And we know that this is the ticket that wins. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Would you stand? Um, uh, I'm going to close here. Before I do, I'd like to just you know, invite the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that uh, could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, and if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, your life isn't surrendered to him, you're still in control of, of your own life, then, uh, but, but you're feeling a pull in this direction, come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd be happy to explain to you what it is to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and join this kingdom, be part of this kingdom that is the one kingdom that is not a castle of sand. It's the castle of the living God, and it will never, ever end. It will never, ever fade. It goes on for eternity. Praise God. As we leave here, may we do it as a people who are, know that we're called to be ambassadors, who have our hope in Jesus Christ and are willing to let that hope lead us into action. Amen? Amen. Go out. Love on the world. God bless you guys.